Well, what a great morning. Um, so, so good. Well, as we've been talking about, we get a chance to start our study of Philippians this morning, and I'm very excited about that. And in an effort to kind of get us all on the same page together, I want to help us understand and appreciate the very unique characteristics of this city. The distinctive call that Paul was given to travel here, and as we will see already this morning, the very special relationship that Paul has with this church. To the point, as some suggest, and I don't necessarily disagree, that this very possibly was Paul's favorite church. They were an encouragement to him, undeniably, uh, more so than probably any of the churches that he established, and the partnership that they shared together was very unique. Well, in an effort to put things in perspective, I want to remind you of the significant influence of the Roman Empire during this time. As you can see, that dotted line describes the territory of the Roman Empire. And the reason I wanted to bring this to your attention is because the city of Philippi has a very significant history within this empire. The city originally got its name from Philip of Macedon, who is actually the father of Alexander the Great. Uh, It was in this city that Mark Anthony and Octavian defeated the forces of Brutus and Cassius, the assassins of Julius Caesar. It was of such prominence in the Roman Empire that it was one of the very few cities that were given the ability to remain as a Roman colony, to be exempt from the taxes of Rome, and it was known for their devotion to the Roman emperor. In fact, many of the residents in Philippi were either Roman soldiers themselves or in some way related to them. It was, in a very real sense, a little Rome, both in form and function. Well, in addition to this history... The city of Philippi was also important because if you look at that red line there, that is a a line that describes what was known as the Ignatian Way that was hugely significant because it was an artery of commerce that connected Rome to the eastern provinces that it controlled as well. And so you can see by just these facts alone that Philippi was no ordinary city. It was rich in history and prestige. But that being said, it was not a city that Paul had originally intended to visit. So if you would, turn to Acts chapter 16. To put things into context, by this time, Paul has embarked on what would be his second missionary journey. And he was actually planning to go north in Asia. But God had something else in mind. If you would turn to Acts chapter 16 and look at verse 6 with me. Acts chapter 16, verse 6. And they passed through uh, the uh, fig, you know what it is, Figrian, and Galatian uh, region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Trous, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man from Macedonia was standing, appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia 
and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, putting out to sea from Trous, he ran a straight course to Sumatras, and on that day to Neopolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in that city for some days. Well, as you can see here, this is Paul's second missionary journey. That top line, uh, you can see Trous there in the western side of Asia, and Philippi is across the sea there up towards the south end of Macedonia. So we can see here that uh, he had a, a route designed to go somewhere else, but God led him in a different direction. Now we know from Paul's pattern as we look at Scripture that every time he went into a new city to preach the gospel, he always went where? To the synagogue. Every time he went to a new city, he went into the synagogue. But something unique happened in Philippi because apparently there were not enough Jewish people within the city of Philippi to have a synagogue because there was not one when Paul got there. So instead, he learned that the first and at that time only people who were seeking after God were a group of women who were gathered by a river outside of the city gate. This is where Paul met Lydia. You remember her? She was a wealthy merchant woman who was a seller of purple fabrics. She and her household were Paul's very first European converts. And Lydia, as we see in Scripture, would remain faithful to Paul and his ministry from that moment on. We do get some idea of the Jewish opposition in Philippi when Paul goes back into the city where a demon-possessed girl sees Paul and Silas and cries out, as you can see in verse 17 of, of chapter 6 in Acts, where she says, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Well, that was actually a true statement. And one that Paul initially ignored, but the girl continued to follow Paul and Silas day after day. And we get the idea that, that these words were more to mock the message of truth than to actually proclaim it. So one day, when this girl starts up again, creating a scene as usual, Paul turns to her and he says, speaking to the demonic spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it does. The slave girl was set free. And her owner, who used her for his own benefit, was furious. He has Paul and Silas thrown in jail. And if you look at Scripture, it says specifically, for being Jews and for throwing our city into confusion. I'd say that's a pretty strong evidence of a very strong anti-Semitism that existed in this city. Clearly, the Jews were not welcome in this Roman colony. So as Paul and Silas were in prison, shackled with chains, with a personal guard that stood over them, this guard must have been intrigued by these two men who were in jail, likely to be punished for a crime, but instead of begging for mercy, 
Do you remember what they were doing? They were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Can you imagine if you were that guard standing there watching these men shackled and chained, praying and singing hymns of praise to God? Well, if that didn't get his attention, the earthquake would. (laughs) The ground shook, the chains were broken, the door swung wide, and the guard stood trembling with fear as Paul and Silas walked out of their cell. It was this Philippian jailer who turned to Paul and asked him, you remember what he said? What must I do to be saved? Paul replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. Well, these are the people that formed the early part of the Philippian church. Lydia and her household. The Philippian jailer and his household. I don't know this for certain, but I would expect that that probably the women who were with Lydia there at the river likely put their faith and trust in Christ as well through the testimony of Paul. And maybe that slave girl who was of no use to her master any longer. It's quite a diverse group, isn't it? But this is the beginning of the Philippian church who, along with Paul and Silas, met in Lydia's house for worship. Others would come to faith after them. But what a unique group, wouldn't you agree? Striving together for the faith of the gospel in the midst of a Roman society that very clearly abhorred them. And yet this Philippian church was the most supportive and sacrificially giving of all the churches in the New Testament. Their bold faith was such an encouragement to Paul. And when you understand the, the environment in which they lived, you can kind of appreciate why that was so. Some consider Philippians to be the epistle of joy. And I think that's a, an accurate statement. But, but what is the source of that joy? I think what we'll see right off the bat is that this is an imperishable joy. It is a joy not determined by by circumstances, but one that flows out of fellowship. It is the joy of Christ and a joy from Christ. It is a bond of fellowship among believers who at the heart of their partnership was the proclamation of the gospel. The joy of the Philippians is the joy of the Lord. If you would turn to Philippians chapter 1. And let's look at this letter together. Philippians chapter 1. I want you to keep in mind as we read this together, at the time that Paul writes this letter, he is under house arrest in Rome. It's probably about 10 years since his initial visit to the city of Philippi. There's a member of the Philippian church, a man by the name of Epaphroditus, that we'll learn more about later on, who has come to visit Paul on behalf of the Philippian church church and this letter is the correspondence that he returns with when he goes back to philippi read with me beginning in verse one paul and timothy bond servants of christ jesus to all the saints in christ jesus who are in philippi including the overseers and the deacons grace to you and peace from god our father 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, I don't want to make too much of this, but it seems to me that that Paul sets the tone of this entire letter right here in the first two verses. It may look like a simple greeting that you and I at first glance just read right past, but I think it's more than that. He begins by identifying both he and Timothy as bondservants of Christ Jesus. Here's the Apostle Paul telling his readers, I am a slave for Christ. He doesn't claim any special rights or or special privileges. In fact, he denies all this in order to humble himself as a servant of the Lord. And I believe he is demonstrating a humility that he will soon encourage the Philippians to exhibit in their life as well. He writes to the saints, including the overseers and the deacons. He looks at this diverse group, as we've already identified, and he tells them by his address, you are all a part of the family of God, set apart for his purposes. He puts them on equal ground to emphasize their unity as a people of God. This, too will be a theme that runs throughout this letter. Finally, he greets them with grace and peace. And in these words, if you think about it, you have the heart of the gospel. For it is the grace of God that gives us peace with God. Without grace, there is no one who can endure his justified wrath for our sins. But because of His grace, there is forgiveness of sin for those who believe and trust in the sacrifice that is made on their behalf. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Humility, unity, and the gospel of grace. You find them hidden in this simple greeting as Paul begins his letter, but they will come out with utmost clarity as we continue on looking at what he says make sure you look for those things as we go through this together i also want you to notice how paul identifies the the faithful devotion of the philippian church very early on in this letter unlike some the philippians did not abandon paul when he found himself in trouble Many times it's easy to to follow a leader when things are going well. But all too often people run and hide when when they're embarrassed or in danger because of that association. But not the Philippian church. Like a marriage, they stood with Paul for better or for worse. 
And in the same way, Paul did not forget about them in the details of his life because they were special friends of his in the city of Philippi. They were devoted to one another. You see that very clearly in just these first few verses. The Philippians were with Paul, it says, from the first day until now. And Paul says that he thanks God in all his remembrance of them. And more important than their devotion to each other was God's devotion to them. For he who began a good work is faithful to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul reminds his friends in Philippi, once God starts a project, he is faithful to complete it. This is such a a comforting verse to me, especially because I often make the mistake of applying my own shortcomings to the character of God. Let me give you an example. Right now, I'm in the middle of a bathroom, bathroom remodel, and to be honest, it is wearing me out. <laughs> I started back in the summer, and I have still got a long way to go. And in fact, there are days that I wonder if I'm ever going to finish because I'm just losing motivation to continue on. My, my shop is a mess, and every time I go in there, I think, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> you know, sometimes I think, I wonder, I wonder if God looks at me like that. Maybe I'm one of those projects that's wearing him out. <laughs> Perhaps he just wants to give up and move on as well. Admittedly, my life can be a mess, kind of like my shop. And perhaps God is tired of working on this particular project. Well, that may be the way we work. But it is not, praise God, how he works. In fact, what we learn from this passage is that God never starts a project that he is not committed to finishing. Every moment of every day, he is at work in our lives for his good purposes. Now, don't let go of that. Because that is the promise of the assurance of our salvation in Jesus Christ. It teaches us that we don't have a grip on God. God has a grip on us. We're not accepted because of our good work. What this passage tells us is that we are perfected because of His good work. I will not persevere because of my strength. But I am God's very own possession. Sealed with His Holy Spirit. And it is His righteous right hand that I find the guarantee of my inheritance in him. Verse 6 confirms this. He who began a good work in you and I is faithful to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Do not forget that. Here's something else that I think is important for, for us to see. As we look at Paul's heart behind the prayer that we will look at here in just a little bit, I want you to pay attention to what he's focused on. For example, did you notice that Paul is thankful for people, not things? He says, I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy for you in view of your participation in the gospel. He didn't thank God 
for his house or for his job or for his health. He thanked God for his people, those who stood with him in faith. Now, I'm sure that Paul was, was grateful for those things, but clearly they were not the focus of his prayer. And I'd like to suggest that they were not the focus of his prayer because they were not the focus of his life. People were the focus of Paul's life. So I want us to pause here just a little bit to give you a chance to consider your own prayer life for just a moment. Think about the things that you bring before the Lord in prayer. When you think about that prayer list, what do you see? This is important because very often the focus of our prayer is the focus of our life. Are people on the top of your list or is it something more temporal? Are you more concerned about God's mission in the world or your comfort in the world? If you examine your prayer life, assuming that there is one, then you'll answer that question. So let me encourage you. As people come to mind, even throughout your day, maybe you're driving down the street going from one appointment to the next, and somebody it happens to all of us, right? Somebody comes up and pops into our mind. Let me encourage you to take that moment and just pray for that person. Just stop as you're driving along the way, or not literally, but in your mind, as you're driving, just bring that person before the Lord in prayer. Don't pray for things. Pray for people. Because one of the truths that we will learn from Paul that we already see in this letter is that things don't bring you lasting joy. People do. The Apostle John would agree because he is the one who would write, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. Whether it's a parent with a child, a volunteer in the the student ministry, a pastor before his church. For any of us, there is no greater joy than to see someone we love walking in the truth. When I first got on Facebook a a few years ago, I uh, received a message from a guy by the name of Joel McNelly. Uh, Joel was a high school student when I was in college as a Young Life volunteer, and Joel was a crazy man. (laughs) He came from a broken family. He was was starved for attention, and Joel was one of those kids who knew no boundaries in how to get that attention. But one day God got his attention, and Joel McNelly gave his life to Christ. And and he and I spent the rest of his senior year doing a Bible study together, helping him grow in that faith. Well, I, I never heard from Joel again after he graduated until I got a message on Facebook two years ago. This is what it said. <clears throat> Todd, March 31st will be 19 years since you led me to Christ. Thanks for going the extra mile for the kingdom. He went on to describe how he was involved in ministry at his church and how he was leading his family now to walk with the Lord as well. I will tell you, there is no greater joy. And the reason is, there is no higher purpose than a life committed to following Christ. 
And people are our most important priority. They should be the focus of our prayers. And not only that, their faithful walk with Christ should always be the source of our greatest joy. But let's be honest. Seeing the good in people sometimes takes a lot of discipline. It is one of those things that for many of us doesn't come natural. When I was at the hospital, we, we often talked about how we had a challenge as healthcare workers because we were trained to identify disease and dysfunction. For example, when you go to the emergency room, you don't want Justin to sit there and tell you everything that's going right with your body, do you? You want him to identify what is going wrong with your body and to fix it as quickly as possible. And that's great. But there's a real problem that we learned as healthcare workers when that same criticalness invaded our relationships with one another and even in our own families. And very often, I think we're challenged with that same tendency in the church. A tendency to, to focus on what is wrong, so much so that we lose sight of what is good and right. It's important for us to identify error and to, to protect against false doctrine but not to the point that we lose our ability to see what is good and right in each other's lives. Or like the Ephesian church did, to lose our first love in the midst of identifying false teaching. It's kind of like those who are are trained to identify counterfeit money. They don't study counterfeits. There's way too many variations of that. But there's only one original. And so they are trained to know the real thing so well that when a counterfeit comes along, they can identify it immediately. Paul's joy came from the discipline of being able to identify what was right. In fact, I believe he could more easily identify error not by becoming an expert in spiritual diseases, but instead by recognizing what it looks like when God is at work in someone's life. I think Paul later makes this point explicit in our uh, book of Philippians. We'll see this together when he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We need to train our eyes to recognize what is right, what it looks like when God is at work. And this is what Paul sees in the Philippian church. He knows them well, and his fellowship went much deeper than just a friendship. These were not people he got to know over a cup of coffee in a conversation. These are co-laborers for the sake of Christ in the trenches with one another, doing the work of God. It's like the World War II series, Band of Brothers, if you've ever seen that. A tremendous documentary as they follow an unforgettable story of a company of soldiers who bravely stood by each other through some of the worst points of the war. These guys were in a fierce battle together, and the fellowship they shared went well beyond 
what they would have ever experienced around the poker table in the comfort of their own home. Just in the last few weeks, we have been talking about this same idea when we've discussed our relationship with the church. Remember, this is a battleship, not a cruise ship. And like Paul in his relationship with the Philippian church, our true bond here at Melanie Park must come from our faithful devotion to the cause of Christ, striving together for the sake of the gospel, co-laborers in the trenches with one another, doing the work of God. So I hope you see, as we look at these first few verses, the, the heart behind Paul's prayer for the Philippians. There's a very unique bond that he, he shares with this church and the mission that they are both committed to together. But now that we're looking at looked at his heart behind the prayer, let's look at the prayer itself. Turn, if you will, to verse 9. Philippians, verse 9. And this I pray, he says, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been fulfilled, excuse me, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul has already recognized the love that he has for this church and the love that he has received from this church. And now he says, I pray that your love may abound still more and more. I want you to notice the preeminence of love in Paul's prayer. He prays for several things, but they're all grounded in the presence of love. It's like Paul tells the Corinthians when he says, I could speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but if I have not love, I am a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. I can have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. I could give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but if I have not love, I have nothing. Knowledge Discernment that comes from God must flow out of love. This teaches us that knowledge that is from God is more than a comprehension of the facts. It's even more than an understanding of what is right and wrong, what is black and white. Knowledge from God, which is grounded in love, is always characterized by discernment. Knowing not only what is right, but also knowing what is best in a particular situation. This means that as we relate to each other, sometimes love might be expressed in compassion, where you just put your arm around somebody and care for them. Sometimes that same love will spur you on to confrontation, where out of love you speak truth into their life. Still other times, love will not say a word, and you best demonstrate it by listening. That's the knowledge that is grounded in love and is able to discern what is best in each specific situation. 
on the other hand, knowledge without love lacks discernment. And although you may know the facts, you will leave a path of destruction in people's lives where you were more concerned about being right than you were in doing what was best for that person. Real love-laced knowledge includes the discernment to understand what matters most. Having discernment allows the the eyes of our heart to see what, what matters most without being distracted by lesser things. You remember last week I talked about the marriage relationship and how if we live by God's design, it truly does get better and better with time. At least one of those reasons that that is true is because the longer you're devoted to each other, the less complicated things become. It's a deeper love because it's a simple love. You learn what really matters most in the relationship and you focus on those things. Some of the things that seemed really important when you were getting started over time aren't that big of a deal anymore. And you just don't focus on those things because they're just not important. We see the same thing in our walk with Christ. Increasingly, over time, as our faith matures, we more easily identify what matters most in life. We come to the conclusion that what matters most in life is how we live for Christ. That's what matters most. Everything else is secondary. And when that becomes our focus, as Paul says, our life increasingly becomes sincere or pure and blameless. Being pure brings with it this idea of being unmixed or uncontaminated. It is a life that is not hiding anything. It's what James has in mind when he talks about being unstained by the world. Blameless literally means without stumbling. It has this idea of walking in a manner worthy of your calling. This does not mean that we're going to live a perfect life. But when our mind is set on the things of God, you need to know your life is being perfected by Him. We're not perfect, but we are being perfected. Because he who began a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He has given us everything that we need for life and godliness because we have been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through faith in Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the source of our joy. And because that is the source... Jesus, it is imperishable because He is imperishable. Our joy is not determined by our circumstances, but is a joy that flows out of fellowship. It is the joy of Christ, and it is from Christ. It is the bond among believers who focus on the things that that are undefiled, whose walk is blameless, who strive together for the sake of the gospel, to the glory of Praise of God. Listen to what Paul says. And whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is pure and praiseworthy, set 
your mind on these things. And the joy of the Lord will reign in your heart. That's where it comes from. Let's pray together. God, as we begin uh, looking at this incredible, inspired by you letter from Paul, I pray that we can learn from the testimony of this church, which I believe had a unique faithfulness to the calling that you gave them in partnership to the Apostle Paul that you saved for a purpose of spreading your gospel. And so, Father, I just ask that uh, there are things in here that we would look at and say, I want to be like that. I want our church to be like that. And that we would recommit ourselves to being a people whose heart is focused on following you. Knowing that we have been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through you, Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of your Father, our God in heaven. May we live our life intent upon that purpose. We love you, Jesus. And we ask this in your name. Amen.